Hi, this is Terry, producer and co-host of this podcast. Bridget and I are taking a couple weeks to do research and interviews before we start Season 17 of this podcast in April. Today, please listen to this episode from our archive. This episode is presented by Mental Health America of Wisconsin. Hello, and thank you for joining us on Giving Voice to Depression. I'm Bridget. And I'm Terry. More than 350 million people worldwide suffer from depression, but you do not have to have it yourself to be affected by it. Its prevalence pretty much guarantees that someone you care about battles its darkness. This podcast tries to shine some light into that darkness. We're not experts, and we're not therapists. We're sisters and best friends who live with depression and are committed to encouraging healthy, healing conversations about mental illness. Hey, Terry. Hello, Bridget. Nice to be with you again. So today's guest, Corinne Pertill, is a journalist, wife, and mother with good friends and a supportive extended family. She never thought she'd be the one dialing a suicide hotline. In fact, she believed such services existed for people in very different situations. Before the crisis in which I did dial the hotline number, I think I also shared a lot of, um, you know, kind of ignorant misconceptions about what it was for. I thought that they were effective resources for people who didn't have other people to talk to a, th- a, a situation where maybe they've, the, you know, family that is supposed to have cared for them has rejected them in some way, or there is some sort of situation where they're, they're not able to tell anyone else in their life about what's going on. Um, and I guess to an extent that is sort of the moment at which a lot of us reach out for a lifeline like that. But now Corinne understands and reminds us that depression by its nature can also put you in a place where even if there are people in your life who are who who would like to help and are able to uh, would would are able to be there for you it it doesn't it, it, it doesn't always make it possible for you to see that or to feel comfortable reaching out with the people who are already there it's never about them and what they lack it's just the nature of this thing that says Oh, it's it's burdensome. It's strange. It's it's not something that should be shared. Um, and I also thought that maybe I didn't think it was serious enough that I would need to sort of inform people of it. It felt like something I could and most importantly should be able to to fix myself or deal with myself. And that is one of depression's go-to lies. By convincing you to keep its symptoms a secret. It closes the door to a healthy, supportive, outside perspective or treatment. Essentially, it gets you right where it wants you. There are very few problems that thrive in silence and isolation and shame, which is a very separate thing from privacy, um, which I also think that, you know, you don't have to tell the world about your personal health concerns, whether it's depression, whether it's um, asthma, whether it's your chronic stomach aches. You don't, ha- you don't have to tell everybody you meet about your personal business. Being private isn't a decision made out of shame. You can just kind of, some, you can just keep what you want, you know, between the people you trust the most. But when you're not telling people things because you think it's wrong to tell them and because you are afraid of what they'll say, if you, if you tell them, yeah, that, that never goes well. That never goes well. 
it did not go at all well for Corinne, who concluded, based on some published research, that it would be best for her developing child if she went off her antidepressants. What I didn't read and what wasn't often really reported very well alongside these studies is that the risks for women who abruptly stop taking their medication during pregnancy is of, uh, of a severe depression relapse is something like one-third. If you were to abruptly say, I'm not going to take my insulin anymore for my diabetes, the idea that you would just abruptly stop treating a health condition while you were pregnant without any sort of other mitigating um, care is, is just a really poor idea, and mental health is the same. So despite her increasingly dark thoughts, Corinne put a smile on her face and trudged through the days pretending. I lived in, you know, with relatives who saw me every day. Um, it was so important to me that none of them see what was going on. And I was taking very active measures to be, to, to try to create the exterior of somebody who was still functioning fine at life. Um, but I wasn't at all. And I don't understand, that's something I wish I could understand better. Um, how you're able to have both these incredibly inaccurate and skewed thoughts and yet still have the functional ability to to give the impression of being okay, I don't understand how that works. Do you think giving that impression is so they don't stop you? Or is it just so you don't have to deal with their reaction? Yeah, I think... It's part of the shame, I think, of not wanting anybody to know um, what's what's going on. Um, there is some like crazy control thing that says like I'd rather not be here than to have to to be here with living the way that that I am now. So there is like I think there is also a thing of not wanting someone to stop you from what seems to you in this crazy set of logic the right the right thing to do. Um, it's just it's another really gross symptom that, that separates you from, from anyone who could help you. And that also blinds you to just how necessary help is at that point. There were other protective factors that also fell by the wayside at that time in Corinne's life. I wasn't seeing a counselor. I wasn't, you know, taking my medication. You know, we had just moved to a new place. So I, I wasn't kind of regularly seeing friends who would say, Hey, is everything okay? You know, you don't quite seem yourself. Um, there was a lot, there was just a lot going on. And, um, I had never had an episode that intense before. So I wasn't, there was nothing that kind of recognized like, this is a, this is an emergency that I should not help for. It was like, Oh, maybe, maybe this is, maybe this is the answer. Maybe this is what I, you know, I should be thinking about. Yes. You made that point saying it, it makes it sound like these, you're, you're finally acknowledging truths as opposed to like, wow, something's really wrong here. Yes. Exactly, exactly. And I think that's just the worst symptom that depression has is to make you think that it's not an illness, um, that make you think that it is reality. It's, it's not a symptom of the disease to feel this dark and very, you know, skewed way about the world. Um, you know, that, that you're somehow more in touch with reality rather than less. Oh, it's just, it's evil. It's just, you know, like if you watched a movie like that and the, the, you know, somehow the, the bad guy, you know, was able to do that in your head, you'd be like, whoa. And then it happens. It happens to, you know, people every day and it's scary as hell because it's in your own voice and you do believe it. Yeah. One very dark day, Corinne was convinced of one of depression's most 
cruel and dangerous lies. You could say with like a three-day period, I went from functioning fairly, you know, fine to, um, to just this alternative world in my head that was very dark and was also certain that my family, my, my, my daughter and my husband would be better off if I was not there, that there was this, and I, and I, the, I can't even, I'm not even sure if I can walk through all the logic or that's, it's even healthy to walk through all the logic of this very bizarre, um, these thoughts. Which brings us to the hotline call. Corinne had decided to act on her suicidal thoughts. She made a plan, which involved a drive. Then something stopped her. She writes about that moment, weeping in her car. I felt my heart plummet because I knew I wasn't going to do what I'd planned to do, and I didn't know what to do instead. I was a mess, a crazy mess, all tears and snot. I didn't want to call anyone. I had to call someone. I didn't, I, I didn't know who else to call. I didn't know what else to do. I felt like I had just backed myself into a corner that I didn't quite know how to get out of. Um, and somewhere in my head, it just popped up. It popped that number. The fact that that number existed somewhere popped in my head. Um, and so I Googled it and I pressed the button for the lifeline. And this really kind man came on the phone and, you know, he asked me the questions that I'm sure you've been trained to ask. And um, he, he helped me find a way out. Corinne asked the lifeline listener what she should do. He told her to drive to the hospital which she could literally see from her car. She asked what she should say when she got there. He said, tell them you're having a psychological emergency. And just having the language to describe something makes a huge difference. Um, it makes it makes such a huge difference to be able to know that there are words to describe this thing you're going, going through. And there are words you can use to ask for help um, that people will understand and that other people have used before. It's not this weird, crazy thing that has never happened to anyone. Um, and that was wonderful. And it was just one of the most generous things that, you know, that a human has ever done for me. And they don't let you find out. They, I've asked, they can't, they can't tell me who, who he was, but um, broadly to everybody who does this work. I mean, I can't, I, I, there's, there's just not enough. Thank you. Um, it's just really, it's just a really generous thing to do for other humans. Corinne shared another detail about that call that we want to make sure you hear. Take me through the call, if you will. We, how much uh, detail are you willing to get in about that part of it? Yeah, um, and it's not so much a matter of willing. It's that it was a pretty traumatic time, and I actually don't. Re- I can't. I don't remember details of it. The things I do remember are that I was placed on a brief hold. So don't panic if that ever does happen because the call needs to bounce around and find an available crisis center to pick up. Um, and I really have anywhere better to go at that point. So I, I was all right waiting. So that bears repeating. Expect a slight delay or to be put on hold as Corinne described it. That does not mean you won't get help that you don't matter, or that your call is not being recognized as important. It's just how the physical system works. The Lifeline is a network of about 160 crisis centers, so it can provide 24-7 support, and calls need to get routed to available trained listeners. Sometimes it takes a minute. We're going to continue our conversation with Corinne next week, and that conversation will include a really good safety plan she's developed to avoid an emergency like this from repeating. We do want you to know, though, that she got to the hospital safely. Her family emergency contacts were called and came to the hospital. 
labor was induced, and her healthy son joined the family. Corinne says her doctor at the hospital helped her understand that she was not a damaged person, but an ill one, and that ill people can get better. Wow. Just the fact that there's a free, confidential, 24-7 emotional support tool you know, with trained, compassionate people mm-hmm. available to all of us all the time is an amazing tool. It is an amazing tool. It's a really wonderful thing to have and, and to access, and you do not have to be suicidal to call it. So it's good to know anytime you are in real distress. And good to know that there might be a teeny delay. Yes, I was really grateful to hear that because I could see feeling like, oh, great, I called a you know suicide hotline, I'm on hold. It would just, you know, in, in a bad place. Exactly. But we also, I want to make the point that, you know, we don't want to leave the impression that Corinne went in, had her baby, and, you know, everything was wonderful in her world. Recovery takes effort and time and therapy and meds and uh, for her. And she did those things and is continuing to do all those things to stay healthy. Absolutely. And next week, we'll continue our conversation with her and talk about that, you know, what you do on a daily basis, the importance of not waiting till, you know, code red, uh, but to recognize when you're starting to slip into some of those negative thought patterns and, and ways that you can protect yourself from getting into a crisis situation. Wonderful. So thank you, Corinne, for sharing your story. We will hear more of it next week. And thank you, Bridget, for joining us. And thank you for all the people that man these lines. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And they're everywhere, which is why they're able to do it 24-7, right? Because they're in all different time zones all over. So, yeah, it's wonderful. All right. We'll hear more next week. Bye, Terry. Bye, Bridge. We hope that these shared stories bring out a little more understanding or help people articulate their experiences of depression a little more clearly or more freely. Thanks to all, everyone who's digging deep and finding the words and finding the courage to give voice to depression. You can find all the other episodes, some resources, and a blog on our website, givingvoicetodepression.com. And you can find the podcast most of the other places that you find podcasts. Just Google it, as our mom says. And please remember, if you're hurting, speak up. If someone else is hurting, listen up. (laughs) 